Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Stress is associated with the onset, maintenance, and recurrence of depression. This study aimed to investigate the feasibility of stress management and resiliency training, or SMART, for enhancing resiliency in a group of patients with major depressive disorder. In an eight-week open-label study, patients with major depressive disorder were invited to participate in adjunctive group therapy with SMART that encompassed attention training and practice of gratitude, compassion, higher meaning, acceptance, and forgiveness. The primary outcome measure was baseline to endpoint change in resilience as measured by the Connor Davidson Resilience Scale. Secondary outcome measures included baseline to endpoint change in stress using the perceived stress scale and in depression using the 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale and 9-item Patient Health Questionnaire. 23 patients enrolled in the study. At baseline, the participants had mild to moderate depression severity with low resilience and high perceived stress. 74% of participants were rated as study completers. At study endpoint, there was a significant improvement in resilience, reduction in perceived stress, and improvement in depression. The authors maintain that a resilience training program focused on wellness is feasible for patients who are currently symptomatic with major depressive disorder. Brief intentional practice of attention to novelty and kindness can improve resilience and maintaining a resilient mindset focused on gratitude, compassion, acceptance, meaning, and forgiveness can increase resilience and reduce perceived stress. A larger randomized control trial is needed to establish efficacy of this intervention and explore the long-term impact of stress management and resilience training in depression. Electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, is a highly effective treatment for major depressive disorder. However, the extent of treatment is often limited by concerns regarding adverse effects on memory. The objective of this study was to examine the short and long-term effects of ECT on verbal, visual, and autobiographical memory functions in patients treated for a severe depressive episode. A pre-post-intervention design included 38 patients and 16 controls referred to a university hospital in Norway for ECT. Patients diagnosed with a major depressive episode underwent right unilateral ECT with brief pulse, square wave, constant current. Neurocognitive assessments were administered pre-treatment and, on average, 19 days and 6 months post-treatment. Patients were compared with healthy controls undergoing neurocognitive assessments at the same time points to account for normal forgetfulness and potential learning effects. Patients performed significantly worse compared to controls on all measures of verbal and visual memory at every assessment, with in-group analyses showed no impaired visual or verbal memory function due to ECT. However, autobiographical consistency was significantly decreased for patients compared to controls six months post-treatment.
patient's ability to acquire new general knowledge does not seem to be affected by ECT. However, the severe depressive episode itself seems to affect these memory functions. Results indicate a potential side effect of ECT with reduced autobiographical memory. Thus, risk of reduced autobiographical memory must be evaluated against the expected symptomatic recovery from depression. A possible barrier to successful treatment with use of ECT is clinicians' and patients' misconception of potential side effects, which may lead to reduced extent of treatment. Deficits in executive function are not generally considered synonymous with the core symptoms of ADHD. Although evidence suggests that stimulants improve both the core symptoms of ADHD and executive function deficits in adults with ADHD, the relationships between improvements in these two domains have not been studied. In this report, post hoc recursive path analyses were used to examine the reciprocal relationships between improvement in executive function and ADHD symptoms from a 10-week double-blind placebo-controlled study of Lizdex amphetamine in adults with ADHD and executive function deficits. In a previous report based on this study, Lizdex amphetamine treatment resulted in significantly greater improvement in measures of executive function and ADHD symptoms compared with placebo. However, the relationship between changes in these two measures was not investigated. According to the authors, the post-hoc analyses indicate that changes in executive function scores and in ADHD symptom total scores following treatment with Lizdexamphetamine are interdependent, suggesting that improvement in executive function and ADHD symptoms following stimulant treatment are related. This clinical research was funded by Shire Development, LLC, a member of the Decatur Group of Companies. This issue's continuing medical education offering presents a review of the literature on the clinical presentation and pathophysiology of anti-NMDA receptor encephalopathy with attention to both the more commonly recognized psychotic symptom prodrome and the less well-understood depressive symptom prodrome. Seventy-three of the most relevant clinical studies, reviews, and case reports related to the objectives were included in the review. Atypical and treatment-resistant depressive symptomatology can occur in anti-NMDA receptor encephalopathy, and early recognition could improve disease management and patient outcomes. NMDA receptor antibodies have been found in healthy and neuropsychiatrically ill patients. Therefore, a clinical correlation must be made, and a positive result does not necessarily correlate with encephalitis. Treatment of anti-NMDA receptor encephalopathy should be individualized and emphasize multi-specialty care. Insomnia in the elderly is a common yet understudied and undertreated clinical condition, especially in low- and middle-income countries like India. The objective of this study was to assess insomnia and its health correlates among elderly primary care patients. A multi-center, cross-sectional survey was administered to 1,770 elderly primary care patients from 71 government primary health centers in India. 
Insomnia was evaluated using the Insomnia Severity Index. Basic demographics and information about medical illness were collected using various study instruments. Primary care attendees with subclinical as well as clinical insomnia had increased odds of being older, female, and having chronic medical illness compared to those without insomnia. Patients with clinical insomnia had increased odds of common mental disorders such as anxiety and depression and greater disability compared with the subclinical or no insomnia groups. In addition, those with subclinical insomnia had poor satisfaction with life compared to those with no insomnia. Elderly patients with insomnia are more likely to have other health issues. Therefore, comprehensive geriatric assessments are needed. Even subclinical insomnia can affect satisfaction with life in the elderly and thus should be addressed through sleep education and sleep hygiene. This study reiterates the need for more awareness with regard to detection and management of insomnia in the elderly population. Alcohol consumption above safe limits is a serious health issue with major socioeconomic consequences. However, clinicians are likely to identify only 20 to 50 percent of patients with alcoholism who present for medical care. The objective of this study was to assess the correlation of type, quantity, and duration of alcohol consumption with biochemical markers and liver function tests. The study included 103 patients with a history of alcohol use presenting to the psychiatry department of a hospital in India. A self-administered structured questionnaire was used to assess demographics and clinical characteristics. Biochemical markers, laboratory tests, and ultrasonography were conducted. Patients completed the alcohol use disorders identification test to assess excessive alcohol use. There was a significant correlation between type and quantity of alcohol and liver function tests, signifying that patients were drinking alcohol of poor quality and that higher alcohol consumption caused more liver damage. A positive correlation was also found between duration of alcohol consumption, and lipid derangement, signifying that longer duration leads to more lipid profile derangements, in turn causing liver injury. The authors advise that early detection of alcohol-related liver damage with biochemical markers, liver function tests, and ultrasonography, keeping in mind the quantity, type, and duration of alcohol consumption, will aid in the preventive care and treatment of patients with alcohol use disorder. Biomarkers for liver damage should be evaluated in all patients with alcohol use disorder, irrespective of level of use, and should be mandatory in those who drink more than 10 drinks per day. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to read numerous commentaries and case reports related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Physicians on the front lines in the United States and around the world discuss the challenges faced by healthcare providers in a variety of settings such as intensive care units, psychiatric wards, and community mental health centers. Other topics include risk of prescribing hydroxychloroquine in COVID-19 infected patients with schizophrenia, potential interactions of remdesivir with psychotropic medications, and the negative effects of quarantine and social isolation in the elderly and in those with serious mental illness. 
We also feature a variety of case reports documenting the recent increased incidence of panic disorder, mania, psychosis, and suicidal ideation. We are constantly posting new material related to the COVID-19 crisis to give you the most up-to-date and timely information. As an all-electronic journal, PCC has an unlimited amount of space in which to publish articles and features. We welcome ideas that any of you may bring to our attention, for we want to expand both the breadth and depth of our articles and specialty sections. Please take advantage of the open invitation to join many of your colleagues in submitting your research to PCC. We also ask that you keep us abreast of trends you see in your practice and topics that would be interesting to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings and our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.